Welcome. This is the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. What's up, everybody? Welcome. This is the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. I'm real glad you're here. And on this special podcast edition, we've got a good friend of mine, Mike Hambright. He's going to come on and talk to us about the top three things every investor should be focusing on right now in this market. I really like getting other people's perspectives on what's working now, what's not working, what should we be focusing on and I think you're going to enjoy it. Mike has been in the business for a really, really long time. He's got a lot of experience and he networks with a lot of high level people in his mastermind. And so we're going to get a real good perspective from Mike on three important things that you should be focusing on in this market. I want to bring to you attention, your attention again, my book. This podcast is brought to you by this little fancy book here called Wholesaling Lease Options. Discover one of the easiest and fastest ways to make money in real estate today. This is a really good book. All killer, no filler. And it's chock full of the same exact strategy I used to quit my job one year into the last recession. Back in 2009, guys, if you remember, if you were around, nobody was quitting their jobs back then, right? But I did because I was flipping lease options. And when we come into a down market, which I predict we're coming into now, lease option deals, flipping lease option deals are some of the easiest deals to do. So if you want, I'm going to give you two ways you can get it. If you like audios, you like AirPod Pros, like these little doohickeys here, <laughs> you can get the audio book for just $1.99 at WLOaudio.com. WLOaudio.com, you get the audio book. You don't get the AirPods, but you get the audio book for $1.99. And if you want the book for free, but you got to pay shipping and handling, go to WLObook.com. WLObook.com will send you this book. You just could pay like seven or eight bucks for shipping and handling and we'll get it out to you. Or you can just get the audio book instantly for $1.99. Go to WLOaudio.com. All right. One more thing. If you're listening to this on um, podcasts, subscribe to the show. Go to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you are and subscribe. I'd really appreciate it. Leave a review. Also, as I'm recording this, I'm going to be live here. I'm live here on the Facebooks and the YouTubes and all of that. So please type in your questions in the chats and comments. Tell us where you are from. I'd love to hear from you. And uh, as we go through this with Mike, we're going to be answering questions and stuff like that. I'd love to hear your feedback. Tell us where you're from. Say hello. If you have any questions for Mike, bring them on. We'd love to say hello to you. And speaking of Mike, there he is. Uh, what's up, Joe? Good to see you, my friend. Mike Hambright from the Flip Nerd Podcast. <laughs> Love your podcast. Joe, you were an inspiration to me when I first started my podcast. When I started, it's been about six and a half years ago. How, how long ago did you start yours? 2011. So uh, nine nine years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So when I started mine, there were really only like four or five out there. No, you, no this is what happened. You saw mine and you thought, oh man, I can do better than that. <laughs> no. We, we need some help. The real estate investing world needs some help. When you went out and you, you looked for a real estate podcast, it was you... Sean Terry, Jason Hartman had like a million different shows. There were a couple out there that were abandoned, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and there probably were a couple others that I'm uh, forgetting there, but there weren't very many. Now there's a ton of them, which is a great thing, right? It, I remember it was kind of scary. I was like, 
it seemed hard. And now it's like, it's just as easy as clicking a couple buttons and going, right? I mean, it's, it's amazing. And it's yeah. funny. I remember in 2011, I say this all the time. I thought I had missed the podcasting boat. I <laughs> yeah. thought I was in too late. And I remember at the time too, like real estate investing was a niche, right. it was a pretty narrow niche. And I was worried like this was too small of a niche. Now, if you were to start a podcast and call it the Real Estate Investing Mastery Show, it'd be like, no, that's too broad. You need to narrow it even more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But well, you've got a good show. I think you probably have more than I do. You've been... You've been I'll say this. So we have, over the years, we have had at least four different, sh- uh, at least three different shows, maybe four. So my main show has always been called The Flip Nerd Podcast. I changed it like a year and a half ago to Real Estate Investing Secrets, kind of Flip Nerd Real Estate Investing Secrets. And so sometimes I've changed it. You know, every once in a while, like, I need to change my artwork. I need to change my, you know, my approach. It's like, you just kind of, you're like a cat with like a ball. You kind of get bored. You're like, I need to bat that around a little bit. Like, let me, let me change it up a little bit. So I don't know, but we had that. And then we had a uh, REI classroom. Oh, REI yeah. classroom is one And we were doing that. It was a daily, like five minute show. So that was a lot of volume. And then when I started my show, I was doing it three days a week. And then like after a while, I went to two days a week and then went to one. That's a lot of, you know, it's a lot of work. And then what are you doing? So what are you doing now? Is it one day a week? So one day a week, you do the Flip Nerd show. And I also have the Investor Fuel Mastermind show where I do, where I uh, interview members of my mastermind. So I do each of those once a week, video podcasts. Nice. So if people want to find your podcast, what do they look for? Flip Nerd? If you go to flipnerd.com, you can find all the shows. Just go to shows and there's like a drop down of all the shows. But, uh, yeah. So we have, uh, yeah, somewhere over 1500 video podcasts over the last six and a half years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I have, I just released episode 845, 858, 858 episodes here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, they say size isn't everything, Joe. So size I, doesn't matter. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, just kidding. Well, I'm glad you're here, Mike. I've enjoyed your podcast and seeing you kind of do what you're doing. You're doing some really cool things now with a new mastermind called Investor Fuel. Yeah. I guess it's not new. You've been doing it for a few years. Almost three years, actually. Yeah. Yeah. uh, I guess probably like a little over two and a half years. Okay, cool. Good for you. Yeah. And it's been growing, been doing real well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's turned out great. I mean, and honestly, it started with the podcast. It really started with just, I've always been like a master networker. Like I, and, and not that I call myself a master networker, but I mean, I've always put a lot of effort into building my relationships and networking with people and, and kind of early on. And even now, not always knowing where that will go. It's just like, if I'm just a connector and I try to help people and say, Hey, do you know this person? You should know Joe, like whatever, and connecting people like things come from it. Right. So yeah, I've always believed that. And even before the business world, like when I was corporate, you know, schlep, I always believed that even in high school, I used to throw like keg parties when I had my fake ID, you know, I was like, I was the connector. You were one of those guys. Oh yeah. I was an entrepreneur selling cups, man. One um, of those. What is that? <laughs> so talk about just a lot of people may not know you. And I just want to tell you all too, as you're listening to this podcast right now on the YouTubes and the Facebooks, please type in, tell us where you're from and type any questions that you have in the chat and comments, something you want us to talk about, type in some questions and comments into the chat. So Mike, tell us a little bit about your history. How did you get started in real estate? What were you doing before that real quick? Yeah, I started uh, the summer of 2008 full-time and really part-time, I kind of just, I let, so uh, the, the backstory is, is I, you know, I was the first person in my family to go to college and growing up, as I think back about it, and in fact, I grew up, you may or not recall this, a few hours north of St. Louis uh, in Illinois. Yeah. And um, you know, I, grew up, I, I had, my, my family was very blue collar. So 
working class for sure. Didn't have anybody. I never knew a business owner. I never really knew an entrepreneur, but I was always very entrepreneurial, like lemonade stands, uh, newspaper routes. Like, you know, I was always hustling for stuff without really knowing why or what that meant. And, and went to school. I was the first person in my family to go to college and got out and was kind of unhappy with like, is this all there? Is this all there is? Like, did I really go to school for this? And then a couple of years later, I went to grad school because I thought, well, maybe I need more formal education, right? And I went to grad school and got an MBA from a, a really great program, at the University of Texas in Austin, and met my wife there. It was a great, great time. But you know, while I was in the program, I'm going to date myself here, but I started uh, the program was a two-year full-time program. It started about two or three weeks before 9/11. And wow. so we kind of went into the program, the type of program that you could come out, everybody comes out making six figures, write your own ticket, you know, to be a high paid consultant or go work on Wall Street or whatever. And that all changed like a couple weeks into my program. Wow. And then so when I got out, it was just like, you know, what are you going to do? Half my class didn't have a job at, at a graduation. And I ended up finding a really good job. It was like kind of what I called a dream job. So without getting into a lot of detail, was there for three years. And then I worked directly for the CEO of, of a $5 billion company. And, you know, I was kind of the golden boy on the inside while I was there. And then one day he got fired and I was his like outspoken right hand man. It's like, well, you got to go too because you're, you're associated with that guy, you know, really? just the politics of uh, kind of corporate America. And that was the first slap in the face. I was like, didn't see it coming. I thought I was, you know, that I could write my own ticket for the most part. And I was like, but I had, I felt helpless because I had no control. I went from like being on top to like, the low lows, you know. Then I went to work for another company and was there for about 18 months, flying high. And then they filed for bankruptcy. And uh, my son had just been born like two months before that. And it was like, wow, I just don't feel like I have control here, right? What year was this? So that last uh, round where, the, where I left the company that was filing for bankruptcy, that was kind of the fall of 08, 07, 07. Okay. And then I was kind of faced with, my wife had left her job. She was a high paid consultant, but hated it. And she had left her job to have our son. And uh, I had like two strikes now, you know, and I was like, man, I just don't have control over my destiny. I've, I've always worked really hard and put every kind of go all in on stuff. And I was like, I'm working really hard for somebody else and they can just flip a switch and turn me off, you know? And so it's kind of that realization of I don't have control here. I need to start my own business. I need to do something on my own. And I'd always had an interest in real estate, but it really never done anything. It'd gone to some, you know, RIA club seminars and workshops and stuff like that. But kind of like a lot of people like consume some information, but wasn't uncomfortable enough to take action, right? Because I still had that job to fall back on. And I finally got to this point to where I was uncomfortable enough to actually take action, right? And, and so we started, my wife and I started both full-time the summer of uh, 2008. You know, How did you start? What were you doing? So I was trying, honestly, I was trying to contact realtors. So I'm in the Dallas-Fort Worth market and, you know, we didn't know. We like picked like two suburbs. We're like, well, we want to buy every, all of our houses in this suburb. And then, you know, within a month, you're like, man, I'll go anywhere. I'll <laughs> just wherever I got to go. But we, you know, it was kind of baptism by fire. You just learn really fast. And so we were contacting realtors and trying to find deals. And they were like, yeah, we'll send you the comps and like in the next 48 hours. And we're like, no, no, I need this like now. You know, it's just this realization of like, we need to go after this in a bigger way. And had a couple mentors, you know, it was more informal relationships. And so it kind of just took a while to kind of really understand, okay, you got to advertise to generate leads. We have to set this up like a business. And we'd come from corporate America. So that, that, that part actually made sense after it registered, you know. And so what you start to realize early on, as you know, is like, yeah, we're real estate investors, but it's a small business, right? I have to have marketing and sales. I have to have business operations. I have to have processes in place. And ultimately, we're marketing and operations people. And real estate's our widget, right? And so yeah. after that kind of clicked, you know, we hit the ground running. We ended up buying... Uh, 
doing about 65 houses in our first calendar year and just kind of works or wholesaling. So of course, doing it the hard way, we were mostly rehabbing. So probably rehabbing, I'd say 70%. Okay. Um, because truthfully, when I first started, I, I, uh, it was intuitive, but I just didn't really had never thought about wholesaling. I grew grew up watching this old house, and I yeah. usually, you know, I grew up in the Midwest. So my job through high school and college was as a Menards, you know, Menards up there. And so I, I don't Save big money at Menards. Yeah, that was my uh, second job after bagging groceries for a year. But you know, I I'd always been around people fixing stuff and building stuff and things. I guess my dad was really handy, and I so I just kind of gravitated towards fixing stuff up. I guess. But then kind of quickly realized, hey, I shouldn't rehab everything. And the the benefits of wholesaling are, you know, quicker cash flow and less risk. And so we did a little bit of both, but we kind of leaned more towards uh, fix and flipping than anything. All right. Yeah. And then did you did you ever join a big franchise or any kind yeah. of? Yeah, yeah. Is that right. a question? You, you know, I did that. <laughs> I didn't know if you wanted to talk no, about it or not. We talk about it or not, but I did join a, a franchise system. And was in it for about eight years. Actually, I, I ended up after about a year and a half, I helped build that nationwide. So I was recruiting new franchisees and teaching them what I had known after I did about 100 houses. And, you know, we were kind of the poster child for that system of like how to leave your job and go be successful in real estate investing. And so so a lot of people gravitated towards that that message. And we were, you know, always very focused on helping people. And so the way it worked is I would bring people in and then I would coach and mentor them. Then I got a royalty on all their deals and you know, in, in exchange for helping them. Right. And so that was my first foray into coaching. And that started probably about 10 years ago. That's probably like Oh nine, late Oh nine. And got to the point to where my team was doing about a thousand houses a year. And it was substantial, you know, business at that point and really helping a lot of people or having a lot of relationships. Uh, and then I ended up uh, selling that kind of business, if you will, just cause I, you know, at the end of the day, I just, I built my business on a rented lot as they say. So I was a hired gun on the outside and just politically, you know, kind of feel like started to feel like I was back in corporate America again with lots of politics and being asked to say things that I didn't believe. And was like, ah, this just isn't for me. So about three and a half years ago or so, I was able to sell that and uh, just start to open up my own programs under the Flip Nerd brand that coincidentally I had been building a couple of years at that point. All right. Good for you. Yeah. Nice. yeah. I brought that up. Yeah. No. <laughs> By the way, Tanner here is from DFW. What's up? Tanner, glad you're here. What's up, Tanner? Jesse says uh, he's from Rhode Island. What's going on? Not, you don't meet too many people from Rhode Island. What's your favorite way of advertising? We'll talk about that, I think, yeah. here as we get yeah, into yeah. Um Keith is saying, I have a looping echo. So I'm sorry if we've got an echo. I turned my volume down a little bit. If somebody can please type in the comments, if you also hear the echo, let me know and I'll put on some headsets or something like that. So my apologies. So Mike, what are you seeing in the market right now? Just real quick, give us uh, your... Your prediction over the next three to six months? Yeah. In the housing market. Let's keep yeah, it to the yeah. housing market. You know, I don't I don't I don't have a, a prediction. I mean, I, I there's a couple of things that I suspect will happen short term, but when this thing opens up, who knows? Fortunately, I try not to watch the news too much, but it sounds like even the media is starting to try to wind this thing down quickly because they know people are there's gonna be a ton of civil disobedience here if they don't, because people are just tired of being at home and you know who's gonna be you know who's gonna be leading the civil disobedience are the teenagers sitting at home all day with mom and dad. Yeah. Yeah. The people that just, they need to make money to survive, right? This At the end of the day, people need to work. This is what a lot of, depending on what you do, but that gives us purpose, right? So I think a lot of people are in a weird spot right now for sure. So, you know, I think short term, what's going to happen is, uh, so what we're seeing is a lot of our members in the Investor Fuel Mastermind, and I run an agency 
called the investor machine for uh, real estate investors is that some a lot of our folks are saying that they have their best month ever in April. I mean, uh, in March. And there's a bunch of like roadblocks going on, deals falling through and stuff, but they're like, a deal fell through and I immediately got it under contract with somebody else. So some of that going on, there's some, you know, there's some chaos with uh, lenders like sitting on the sidelines and stuff like that, which is, that's what happens in a down market or when there's fear, you know, the lenders pull out first, right? But I think uh, it's going to be more important than ever for investors who are active to really start thinking about private money. Would you yeah, agree with that? Start for sure. Yeah, we, we actually just set our next uh, investor field meetings coming up here in about three and a half weeks. And we just put in place a seller, a, prop, sorry, a private money uh, panel from yeah. some people that are in our group that have always been really good at raising money. But yeah, for sure. I think that's one of the things that people should should focus on. I mean, we'll talk about a few things that people should be improving. And that's one of them is, is raising private money. Like get to the point to where you have to try to make yourself bulletproof in your business. Like what can I do so that the next time the market goes down or if this thing happens again, like how do I minimize the impact to me by things I can put in place now. Systems, processes, relationships, all those things, right? Yeah. Do you see uh, in the housing market in general, the retail market, do you see days on market getting bigger, prices starting to go down? I, I don't see... So that's very market specific, obviously, right? So I haven't seen that in DFW and a lot of other markets. I don't think we're seeing that either. This is my suspicion. One thing that I think will probably happen short term is that you know, as investors, we're, we're often competing against owner-occupant inventory, right? Owners that are trying to list their house and sell it. And I think you were coming into the kind of the summer sailing season here, right? Like late spring, early summer. I think a lot of homeowners that would traditionally be fixing their house up right now and looking for their next house that are kind of thinking, as soon as the kids are out of school, we're going to list this thing and sell it. I think a lot of that activity is going to be disrupted this year. Maybe they move later in the summer. We'll see how things go. Or maybe it'll be, let's just wait a year and see what happens, which is a good thing. It's not a good thing for agents because they have less inventory to list. It's a good thing for investors because I have less competition on the market. So there's probably less demand, but there'll be, I think the supply reduction will be greater than the demand reduction. Probably depends on market by market, but I think, you know, that'll that'll prop up investor prices, I think, for a while. I'm predicting, too, I think that for realtors specifically, the ones that are going to sur- survive and do the best are the ones who are going to be really good at finding buyers. So buyer marketing is going to become popular again. And I right. remember very vividly back in 08 and 09, 2010, even all the way through 2012 and 2013, the buyers, I mean, the investors and the realtors that were doing really well were focused on finding buyers first. And all of their marketing efforts shifted from finding sellers and getting listings to finding buyers who had money who could close. Yeah. And there always will be buyers who can close. There always yeah. will be. Yeah. Even in, so, I'm in a unique, not a unique market, but the DFW market has been on the growth path for the whole time that I've been doing this. So, even like, 2009, 10, we were rehabbing a lot of houses and it would be uncommon for us, even in those slow times, that we would list a house and it wouldn't be under contract to sell within a week. What price ranges were you focusing on? So kind of, uh, uh, so at that time, 100 to 250 ARV, kind of at the time, you know, probably 40K above and below the median price point. Yeah, that's really important. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. 40K up and down between the, the median price range. Right, right. So that's where the most buyers are, right? And so, but but here's the difference though, is it wasn't because like we would look at who else is on the market, like what else is listed, what just went active, and we would just build a better mousetrap. So it'd be some combination of price or quality. And so, you know, at the time when you go into a downward market, there's always this period where sellers feel like, well, my house is still what it was worth a couple of years ago. Like they just, they overprice it. 
It's not updated as much. And it would be common for us to get a house under contract and there's a house listed like across the street or down the street or whatever. And we would like wait three weeks to close on it, close, rehab it, list it and sell ours before that one did because they were just unreasonable. Like owner occupants tend to be a little more unreasonable and they weren't thinking about who is my competition. And whenever I was selling a property, I was like, how do I get next in line? I'm going to be the next house to sell in this market. What do I have to do to do that? Would you generally try to make your house the nicest and the cheapest? Yeah. So I would say we, we always, we erred on the side of rehabbing really nice at that There was like back then it was granite, stainless every time. And then a few years later, I started to realize like, hey, I started to understand kind of the wholesale model a little bit better. And we quickly pivoted there because it's just way easier. I would rather have a inferior product at a better price, kind of the the Walmart model, right? Yeah. uh, What I was going after, after I kind of realized like, wow, I need less. I, I don't have to borrow as much money. I don't have as much pressure on managing crews for rehabbing. And when you start to realize like everybody likes a deal, there's entire malls that have been built up. They manufacture clothes for outlet centers now. Yeah. And they're not, it's not like second runs and stuff anymore. They like manufacture it for that because they're aiming at the person that likes a deal. Right. That's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, Hey, how do I position myself for somebody that is willing to accept something that's imperfect, but it's a really good deal. So how do you, what do you, what what are some of the things you do for a wholesale deal? What do you do to the house? Well, you know, that's evolved over time. And I think it's market specific too, like market cycle specific. So I think what you'll start to see as the, if you're a rehabber and if the market starts to slow here, I think you have to improve quality more than you did a few months ago or last year. And because you're going to have to, you either have to have pull the lever. You got two levers, really. Quality and price are the main levers, right? Or you know, when you do lease options and stuff, you, you offer the financing. There's obviously uh, you offer a unique solution to somebody that needs that. So you yeah. have another lever there that you use, which is amazing. But I think that you know it got to the point to where up until here recently, we did we did nothing to houses. Like we didn't even clean them. We're like, I'm just going to put on the MLS <laughs> and sell it because inventory has been down and prices are up. And it's like, how do I compete? It's like, I just have to be available now. And so at first I thought, well, we'll fit. We have it. where I'm at in North Texas, we tend to have some foundation issues. So it's like, well, if it needs foundation work, I'll fix that. If, if anything's real scary, I'll fix it. And that evolved to just get, get, get to the point where we're saying, I'm not going to do a damn thing. <laughs> let's see. And it, it's kind of a test as an investor too. You're like, let's yeah. see what happens if I just put that out there and I don't do anything. Yeah. So kind of depends, but. Yeah, that's a good point. It depends on the market and we'll see. Yeah. I think nobody knows what's going to happen in the next few months. The cool thing about real estate that I like compared to the stock market is real estate, when it changes, it doesn't change immediately on a dime, relatively speaking, compared to the stock market. Stock market overnight down 10%, you know? Yeah. But with the real estate, it kind of is a lot slower, isn't it? And it gives you more time to react. I've been telling folks, you know, as we start going forward here, you need to learn how to make a quick nickel. I think making a quick nickel is going to be better than a slow dime with the uncertainty that's going on. So whatever you do, try to get in and out of your deals as fast as possible. Yeah, that's that's what we talk about too. If you're, if you're used to doing heavy rehabs, try to do more wholesaling and wholesaling. Like Try to get that cash conversion from kind of contract to contract to yeah. putting cash in your account. Make that cycle time faster right now. Just you just There's too many unknowns right now. Nice, nice. Okay, Skip says no echo in New Hampshire. Thank you. And Mr. Unknown or Mrs. Unknown says no echo. Appreciate that. (laughs) Ty says here, thanks for taking out the time to talk about your experiences, Mike. I appreciate you, Joe, and appreciate you, Joe, for taking the time to do these types of conversations. 
Thank you, guys. Appreciate that. Um, all right. So, Mike, let's talk about the uh, the three things you're telling people to focus on now in this kind of a market. This is what's what's shifting right now. What what are the three things you're telling people to focus on? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, one of the things is to not forget why we got into this in the first place. Like you and I were both kind of corporate refugees. We got tired of working for somebody else or the limited upside or all those things, which I think is, is what brought a lot of people into this business. And I've said it before, like I ain't ever going back to corporate America. I'm, I'm completely unemployable at this point, which I, I find some comfort in that, right? So, but I think, you know, the the freedom that it gives your family, obviously, I know you guys travel a lot. We, we travel, we like to travel and do a lot of things. And right now, you know, those things are at risk for some of us, depending on where you are in your career. It's like, I'm not willing to accept that this doesn't work anymore. The truth is, is there's still people, they're still going through distress situations, death, divorce, inheritance, problem, you know, landlords are, kind of tired landlords, all those situations still exist. In fact, they're probably a little bit more extreme right now, which is going to create opportunity for us. And people still need shelter. They need affordable housing, depending on what market you're in. Um, you know, if you're in California or, or more expensive markets, some of that pressure means people are leaving and coming to states like Texas or uh, where I'm at because they're just trying to move to a better land that that has less pressure on affordable housing, I guess, affordable living. But if you're in an affordable market, there's still going to be plenty of demand for housing and there's still going to be people that are going through distress, just stressful situations, I guess, that they need to sell. So our, our cheese is proverbially getting moved, right? But the opportunity for us as real estate investors is not going away. You just have to change with it. So don't forget why you got into this because those freedoms are not going to change for you. You just have to shift. You have to pivot. That's good. I mean, so that's, that's the big one is I think sometimes we sit around and we question, should I be doing this? Should I just go back and get a job? Your situation is unique to you, but there's still lots of opportunities here. You just have to, you just kind of have to pivot. If you look at some of the most successful companies like ever, even, including, you know, Facebook and huge companies, right? Their business model today is usually very different from what it was when they started. And it's because as entrepreneurs, we just say, ah, that doesn't work. Don't do that anymore. This is working, but nobody's paying us money. Like, you know, you, sometimes you end up having a, a job where you're doing a lot of work, but you can't make money doing it. And you just keep pivoting until you kind of find your way to what works for you, right? Yeah. So I think that's the big, that's the big one is use this time to reflect and just say, what do I do differently? And so I think we, we all, that's a healthy discussion you should be doing regularly anyway, right? And so situations like this kind of force us into it if you haven't done it for a while. The other big thing I, I'd say is um, my kind of my claim to fame with my wife and I is that when we started in 08, didn't know squat, you know, we started like surrounding our, we tried to find mentors and learn here and there. Of course, there, there weren't very many pot there. I don't know if there are any podcasts in 08, but um, there wasn't as nearly as much online information for sure. I mean, there was, you know, you're buying like books and manuals and stuff like DVDs. that. Right? DVDs. VHS. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Probably some VHS stuff. And, and just finding your way uh, through going to a lot of RIA clubs and, you know, listening to people talk about things and finding what resonated with us. Uh, but at the, at the end of the day, one thing I picked up on early was the importance of paid advertising. Like you have to spend money to generate leads, like leads are everything. However you get them, you can get them, but usually paid leads are the most uh, consistent. You have the most control over that. And so it was kind of probably early 2009 when I knew a bunch of heavier hitters in my market that were struggling with like old inventory or they lost lines of credit that were keeping them alive or whatever it might be. They stopped advertising. And there was this month, and I don't remember the exact numbers, but I think we were spending maybe 5000 a month or so. And from one month, I don't remember the 
it was early 09. We went from about $5,000 a month in spend up to, I think about $22,000, $23,000. And from that point forward, we just, we just became a machine. And all we did was there's still demand for investors buying houses from distressed sellers. And we filled a void. People stopped advertising and we leaned into that lead, that yeah. flow of lead generation that was out there, right? And that's what's happening right now. There's some more uncertainties, sellers cycle time to make a decision to sell, I think could be a little bit longer right now because you know they, they don't necessarily want people coming into their house, which wasn't an issue before now. And they don't know where they're going to go next if they're living there, which is uh, creates some uncertainty. But that kind of flow of leads of people needing to sell their house at a discounted price has not changed. In fact, it might go up in the months ahead, right? And so it's just how do you how do you fill that void that is left in the marketplace by people sitting on the sidelines? So I can tell you, so I'm really good buddies with Todd Swaggerty. He's the largest direct mail house for uh, real estate investors. And uh, his business is down, but he's like, the people that left are the people that were doing periodic small orders, really kind of the newer investor that's dabbling. And the people that uh, are serious about this are either staying steady in some instances increasing their advertising right now. And that's yeah. because they have some wisdom. They know that there's this void that will open up and they're stepping into it. So so that's a that's a really long way to say do not stop focusing on lead generation. Like get smarter about where you're spending your money at, cut back on the stuff that wasn't working for you before, but make sure that you are leaning into generating leads right now because sellers are going to need you more than ever. Real good. So is that all three? No, I've got one more. That was Let's just, do the third. You're not counting, Joe? <laughs> I, I thought it was two, but I want to... <laughs> yeah. The third one is is really take the time to kind of improve your systems and processes and and put the checklist in place, whether it's... Sometimes when you say systems, you know, people freak out. They're like, like software, like CRMs. And yeah, all those, all those things are important. Sometimes it's just simple checklists of how you do what you do, right? And uh, we're all guilty. I think a lot of us are guilty as real estate investors of doing things like we we basically we look at the Kiyosaki cash flow quadrant and we say we're business owners, but we're really self-employed, right? We're like you 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 own a job or the job owns you and we end up doing all the stuff. And a lot of that is because it's in our head, right? So we can't we can't get out of our own way. Use this opportunity to get those systems and processes in place to help you operate your business to where, I mean, Joe, Joe uses VAs a lot. I use VAs a lot. And other staff, you've got to scale your business in a way that allows you to not be the bottleneck on it. And this is a perfect time to get those systems and processes in place so you can actually hand it off to somebody and it's not all in your head. What does that look like? Can you just give us an example, a system, a system and a process? So it could be, uh, so we use, we use Asana. And we have used it for a very long time. For lead management? No, we use it for uh, really kind of project management. So we use Podio until we get... There's a funny story I have about Podio, Joe, because we were using it before I knew you were using it. And we were you were at, a, we were at an event together. And you and Sean Terry, you were showing Sean Terry Podio. Yeah. And my wife heard it. And she and she had suggested it before. And I'm, I'm notorious. Like, if it wasn't my idea, I'm just like not as big on it. You know, I'm that guy uh, sometimes with my wife and she lets me know. But... She had been looking into Podia. I'd never heard of anybody. I was like, I've never even heard of that. We're not using that. At the time, we were using High Rise way yeah. back. I mean, I know you remember that. Oh, yeah. And uh, anyway, that's the first time we'd ever heard somebody else say they're using Podio. You were using it at a at more advanced level than what we were at the time. But I got a, I remember getting a sharp elbow like, see, like other people are using it too. So anyway, <laughs> but we use that for lead management, follow-up, stuff like that. And then when we get a house under contract, we switch over to a task template in Asana, yep. which is free, by the way. You go to... ASANA.com. And we've been using that guy. We've probably been using it for 
eight years or so, maybe more than that. And we just create these checklists of uh, like, what when I get a house under contract, if I'm going to rehab it or if I'm going to assign it, we have a, a list based on exit strategy. And if it's a rehab, there's a series of tasks for like, do do this immediately, do this seven days before closing, do this right after closing. And it's things like at the time of closing, like get the contract signed, send it to the title company, you know, put a lockbox on the door, dot, 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 whatever it might be. Then right after closing, it's like turn on the insurance, turn on the utilities all the way at the end to make sure the wire came in, remove the lockbox or whatever those things might be. Right. And so what we do, as you know, is like, so repetitive. Like the types of things we do with houses is the same thing over and over and over again. And before that, we were using Excel and, you know, it's messy. Let me, let me ask you something because I've been curious about this. Um, yeah. We use Podio not as much as we used to. I'm using more um, REI Simple now, which is a white labeled version of FreedomSoft. Yeah. But you could do those automated tasks and checklists in Podio, right? So why... Asana, not why didn't you do that? Yeah, I just, so Asana, I just am able to get more visibility. So that one cool thing about Asana, for example, is they have projects, which would be a list of tasks, and then tasks and their subtasks. And I can assign, I can create a template that is, hey, for every house, for every rehab, here's like 74 tasks to do. It's already pre-assigned to the person on my team that has to do them. And I can see... I can like do a search for somebody on my team like Anna and I can say, well, show me all the projects that Anna's past due on. And so I can just kind of see visibly of all the different projects in my company, like what's past due and who's doing what. And so it's just a little more friendly from my perspective of, in fact, I said Excel prior to that, we had this massive whiteboard at the back of our office and for every property, even people use whiteboards a little, I mean, I have one right here, but uh, for a house buying, because you know, when you and I started, there weren't really any CRM. So we'd have a whiteboard list of properties and we would have like utilities on closing dates. Like we'd have check marks on a whiteboard, like check marks, right? We use that black tape and like have all these grids. I mean, those days. You know, I was at somebody's office a few years ago and they, I don't know, they were, they were doing 20, 30 deals a month. And I've never had that kind of an operation. And they were using, and I think they still are to this day, manila folders. Every house gets a manila folder and stapled to the front is a checklist. Right. Yeah. And then they have on the walls, big wall, and they have maybe four or five columns of different stages of the deal. Yeah. Right. And then below that, there's a place like a, it's like a pocket that can hold folders. Right. And that's all they do. So when they're working on a deal, they'll go to that folder, pull it out. All the documents are in there, yeah. paper stuff, everything. We the still, checklist and the dates and everything's written in. And when they're done, they put it back in whatever stage of the deal it's in. Yeah, we still, honestly, we still use folders for contracts and stuff. And it's a little repetitive with what's in, because we use a combination of Podio and Asana and Dropbox. But there's just so much paper in this business, especially if you're if you're rehabbing, right? There's lots of stuff amendments, all that. And so we still use like a four-part folder. So we've got like the buy side, the sales side, the uh, we use for like rehabbing, and then we use it for like insurance and utilities and all that stuff. That's kind of how we do it. And then at the end of the day, we scan it all and put it in a Dropbox and shred it and move on. But yeah, it's hard to not be a little old school sometimes. Yeah. Truebrook 
Home Buyers has a good question here. How would you define a system and how would you define a process? I want to make sure I understand the difference. How do you define I don't know that I understand the difference. Uh, they just kind of go together. Like I think a system could be a software, right? It could be Podio. It could be something. A process is the way that you use that system to do something. You're the engineer, Joe. Why don't you tell us? <laughs> I, would, I would look at a system as the Asana or the Podio. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The process is the checklist. Right. It kind of goes in there. Yeah, that's I agree with that. So like um, when I create a process, I usually start with a Google Doc and I just bull, I've done this dozens and dozens and dozens. Of and I just kind of state at the beginning my goal, like what's the goal of why am I doing this? Then I say, um, for example, it could be sending yellow letters to expired listings. That's a process I want to create, right? Then I say my goal is to send, you know, a hundred letters a week to expired listings. And then I just go through and I start bullet pointing the stuff. Like, where do we get the list from? What does a letter need to say? How are we sending the letter? Who, who does that? Then I create a video using Loom or Screencast-O-Matic or something like that of me opening up the document so it's on my screen there and then actually just doing all of that stuff. When the video is done, it's uploaded and I get a link and I paste that link at the top of the document. Now I have a Google Doc, which is the process for how to send letters. I guess you could also call that a system, but I, I call that my, that's my standard operating procedure. That's my SOP, my process. Then I can share that Google Doc with my team, with my VAs. It goes into one folder in Google Drive. But then if I had to bring on a new VA or that VA quits or I'm training, all I need to do is share that Google Doc with them. And if I ever update it, I don't just redo the whole video. I just have a, at the top, I say, watch these videos. And then there's bullet points below that of every different video that I've had to add to it. You know, if I, if I make a mistake and I change something, again, I just do a new little one or two minute video saying, Hey, I just, I just updated this and changed this. Yeah. So when they're, you know, in a year from now, when they're, they have to watch all of five videos or whatever, but that's my whole process right there in that document. And then I've, I've even gotten better now where I have my team create the processes for me. I learned this from a mutual friend of ours, Todd Toback. It's like, why yeah. are you creating the SOP? <laughs> You're not even doing any of that stuff anymore. Get your VAs to do it for you. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yep. And many times they can do it better. Well, if they're, are, if they're the ones that are doing it on a day-to-day -day basis, they should know how to do it better. But Well, then like, make them figure it out and then write the process so that if they quit or if you they need more help, they can give it to somebody else and then they, they can get it done. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Mike, how can people get a hold of you? You've got a lot of videos and podcasts and books. And what, What's your thing that you, you want to send people to today? Yeah, I mean, hey, just connect uh, on Facebook or you can go to flipnerd.com. We've got a, just a ton of content on there over the years and a lot of information. And so those are probably the best places. Just uh, go to the site. You get a lot of great information. Connect on Facebook. Say hi if you want to. Connect on Instagram. I'm trying to... I'm trying to grow that. Uh, actually, I have grown that quite a bit, but I, I'm not, I put a, we put a lot of content out there, but it's I don't do the best job of engaging. Yeah, I'm trying. We're trying to do it all, Joe. Try to be like you. No, I don't. I don't like Instagram. I like looking at it maybe once in a while. It's just too much. Yeah, I'm I, I'm old school. I'm getting gray hair. <laughs> <laughs> no, but if you guys want to get a hold of Mike and uh, just look him up on Facebook. Or go to flipnerd.com. He's got podcasts. Go look him up in podcasting world. Go look in YouTube. He's got a bunch of really good videos out there. That would be cool. Luke has a good comment here. I just want to add this in. This definition I liked helped me. Systems equals peoples plus process plus tools. That's a great definition. A system is process plus process. I'm sorry, people plus process plus tools. That's good. Thanks, Luke. <laughs> 
All right, Mike. Hey, thanks for being on the show. I'm going to be on your show. Yeah. Next swap. Monday. Yeah. Swap. That's right. Yeah. Excited for that. And um, I appreciate you being on the show. Hot seat. Somebody, Somebody is. Uh, must be a look Cubs. At this. Look at this, Randy. He's always giving me a hard time. He's a Cubs fan. That is. I hate the Cubs. Is uh, is like a house with uh, with glasses on. Joe's probably got some of these over these. I think we probably sent them to you at some you point. You did. You did send them to me. I ordered a. Uh, there's a funny little secret. I ordered like thousands of these from uh, China at one point. So years ago, we've been living off of this inventory for like years and years. <laughs> Coincidentally, I also used to live in Wrigleyville and uh, be a Cubs fan. I grew. I moved to Dallas from Chicago. Used uh, to be. Well. Uh, you know, uh, I'm saying I used to live in Chicago. I grew up in Illinois. I used to live in Chicago and was a bigger Cubs fan than I am. Now I actually went to a Cubs game uh, this past summer. Up in I miss baseball so much. I would, I would love to go to a Cubs game. Even if it was the Cubs, I would just love to go see a baseball game right now. <laughs> well, it's funny. I, I'm a, I have uh, season tickets for the stars and a good friend of mine has two seats too. So we, we go to all the games the season got cut short. Like who knows what's going to happen. The hockey team. Yeah. 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 Uh, Dallas stars hockey team. And, um, and uh, I was talking to him yesterday and he's like, he found it. He's, he's like a really big hockey fan. And he's like, he found himself watching like a four year old rerun of a hockey game and like screaming at the TV the other day. Even if it's an old game, like people just, they, they gotta, they gotta get that fixed somehow. <laughs> the last hockey game I was at um, was just a, a week before the season ended uh, was uh, I think a week or two weeks was the St. Louis blues playing the stars. Yeah. In St. Louis. Like arch nemesis. I mean, this, uh, the blues won, the Stanley cup last year. But the, the interesting thing is in the second round of the playoffs, the stars and the uh, blues went seven games yeah. and the blues won it in overtime. So like we almost stopped them. They wouldn't even have moved forward. I don't, that doesn't mean that the stars would have won, of course, but stars fans like to believe like, Hey, they <laughs> us. <laughs> of course, we'll never forget the 2011 world series where the Cardinals beat the Texas Rangers. Yeah. In dramatic fashion. How many like, Two or three times you guys could have won the World Series. You were one strike away. Yeah. It's two outs, bottom of the ninth or the 11th inning. You were one strike away from winning. And the Cardinals came back and won that pivotal game six and then game seven. <laughs> Best World Series ever, 2011. But anyway, sorry to bring up old wounds. <laughs> That's good. I think it's a great way to end the show. You know, talking about sports, <laughs> and uh, hopefully they'll come back soon. But, Mike, I look forward to seeing you again soon. Absolutely. Um, guys, go check out Mike's podcast, Flip Nerd. Go to flipnerd.com. Check him out on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. He's all over there. Yeah, and thanks again, Mike. We'll see you later. Take care. Good to see you, Joe. Take you care, too. everybody. 